Hello, welcome to the For the Love of Film podcast. I am the host, Scott David Chase. Uh, on this episode, I'm going to talk about the new film's prospect, The Girl in the Spider's Web, and Bohemian Rhapsody, as well as the classic 1986 Hayao Miyazaki film, Castle in the Sky, uh, which I was lucky enough to get to see in the theater. Uh, so, first off, let's talk about Castle in the Sky. Uh, Castle in the Sky was one of the few uh, Miyazaki films, uh, Studio Ghibli films, that I had not seen yet uh, <clears throat> on home video or, and definitely not on the big screen. Um, you know, it was, uh, I'd heard great things about it. It wasn't like I was intentionally avoiding it before that. It's just one of those ones I had never seen. And my experience with Miyazaki's films, for the most part, is as they progressed from the 90s and onward, they seemed to get uh, more intricate, more complicated with the stories. Um, Ponyo notwithstanding, which is a, you know, uh, aimed at a much younger audience. Uh, and that was after he had started a partnership with Disney. Um, but... So I kind of figured that Castle in the Sky was going to be m- more geared towards younger younger audiences. And uh, so I think that, that probably has something to do with why there wasn't a whole lot of urgency on my part to see it. But when <clears throat> it popped up as playing in uh, my local theater for one day only, I decided to jump at the chance to see it. I mean, I love seeing animated films, specifically hand-drawn animation. Uh, I love seeing these films on the big screen because it doesn't happen all that often now. Uh, most of the time when animated films come out now, they are computer animated, and uh, that is you know that is an art in its own right, and not to take anything away from it, but um, being a visual artist myself, I've always been fascinated and kind of captivated by hand-drawn animation and it really is something you don't see that much anymore but it's something that I grew up on as a child you know tons of animated films uh the secret of nim you know from don bluth studios and um the last unicorn from rankin and bass as well as their uh adaptation of the hobbit book and you know many many animated films I loved as a kid so I was pretty excited to check it out, and I was surprised at the, and and I I, I should say I shouldn't have been surprised, but I was surprised at the depth of the the story. Uh, It was more involved, and like like a lot of Miyazaki's other works, you know, Spirited Away, Princess Mononoke, so on and so forth, it does take a little bit of time to set up the world and uh, get the story on its feet. You know, it, it, it's never boring, but it, Miyazaki's a filmmaker who is never in a rush to get his story going. He really lets you feel and understand the world that uh, you're living in. And uh, so, you know, this is about, uh, you know, it's a fantastical world. Uh, where there are fl- flying airships and there's a, a, you know, the titular castle in the sky, which it, it, 
the film is called Laputa Castle in the Sky in Europe and uh, Australia. It was shortened for the American audiences, but uh, you know, there's a there's a castle in the sky floating around, and there's an amulet that holds, you know, supposedly holds power over this castle in the sky, and um, you know, this young girl can wield the power of the amulet. So there's you know, space pirates that are looking for her. There's there's shadowy government agents looking for her and you know she she literally falls from the sky and has a young boy help her along her quest and yeah it's so it you know it's it's clearly a, a fantasy fantastical film uh, but um, yeah I, I loved it thought it was great um, I mean I haven't seen a Miyazaki film that I haven't liked so I'm sort of sort of chastising myself for taking so long to see it, but uh, again, it it was not an intentional slight not to see it, I just it it never had the opportunity and typically the the Studio Ghibli films on Blu-ray run a little more expensive than most films, they're usually about $30 to $35 and didn't want to, you know, I'm trying to buy less movies now if it's not something that I would watch over and over again. And again, like, I did really enjoy this, but I, I'm probably not going to purchase this. Uh, you know, Princess Mononoke is one of my favorite films. Spirited Away, also a favorite film. And I own those on home video, but uh, I don't think I'm going to purchase this. But it was fantastic to see and would certainly love to watch it again. You know, the animation for being 32 years old uh, still looks beautiful. Um you know, uh, it was, uh, the, I'm not sure when the American dub of this was done, because Anna Paquin does, uh, the young girl's voice, and Anna Paquin sounds like she was still a child herself, uh, and James Vanderbeek does the, the boy's voice, and he's, you can tell he's sort of making his voice sound younger than he actually is, but I would imagine, this was probably done right around the time or right after Dawson's Creek was a big hit because that was sort of the high watermark for James Vanderbeek. So I would imagine it was at least 10 to 15 years ago that this was was dubbed into the English version. So, um, And, you know, Cloris Leachman does one of the voices, which Cloris Le- Leachman's voice has been used for several of the American dubs of Miyazaki's films. So... Um, you know, usually with foreign films, I'd prefer to see the original dialogue track with subtitles, but with animated films where it's such a visual medium, A, trying to read it comes becomes distracting, and B, again, because it's animated, it doesn't really matter that it's been dubbed uh, as far as, like, mouths matching up, so I have no problem watching dubbed versions of foreign language animated films. I know that's uh, sacrilege to some people, but uh, that's just my own preference. So I would, you know, I would give uh, Castle in the Sky a solid 7 out of 10. Uh, great film. It, you know, uh, it'd be pretty okay for kids to watch this. I mean, I don't know what the American rating is. My guess is PG, but there wasn't really anything too 
objectionable in it. Uh, you know, there's no language in it. The violence, the violence is minimal in this one. You know, some of Miyazaki's other films are more violent, but uh, yeah, definitely worth checking out if you have not seen it. And if you're not familiar with Hayao Miyazaki's work, um, certainly one of the greatest filmmakers of the last 50 years, not just an animated filmmaker, but just a filmmaker overall. Um, so a, a highly recommended filmmaker. Uh, the next film that I saw was uh, this movie Prospect, which I had seen previews for it, uh, I think once, maybe maybe twice beforehand, and I didn't realize until after I had seen it and did a little research on it that it was released solely in two Regal cinemas. You know, it was, it was available for streaming as well simultaneously, and um, just having nothing to do with the film, my thoughts on that, because there's, there's start, that's starting to happen a little bit here and there where film, uh, you know, uh, theaters and theater chains are getting exclusives just like Netflix and Amazon Play and Google Play and all of all. There's so many platforms to see stuff, and it it frustrates me that there's so much exclusive content because, A, it's so hard to keep track of where stuff is available, and almost, uh, particularly with the online things, almost all of these, you know, require a membership, you know, a paid membership, and it's kind of crazy to try and have a membership to all of these um, so you can see this content, you know, it gets fairly expensive. And unfortunately, I don't think there's enough amazing content to justify, you know, spending um, 10 to $15 a month uh, for these exclusives. You know, I have Netflix, but the, and uh, I have Amazon Prime, but I hardly ever use the Amazon uh, video feature because even though it's included with Amazon Prime. You can only get it with Amazon Prime. Most of the non-Amazon exclusive content you still have to pay to watch, and you know you have to either rent it or buy it for you know anywhere between four and ten dollars. And I don't watching something digitally on a tiny screen is not my preferred way to see films. Uh, I don't have internet hooked up to my television so I can't watch these on a on a bigger screen and I'm fine with it for Netflix but uh, you know I'm not interested in doing that so and the other the other problem I have with all this this uh, compartmentalization of content that's coming out is stuff just falls through the cracks uh, you know case in point this film Prospect um, I I really enjoyed it. Um, it's a it's a really small uh, science fiction film. You know, it's a it's a small cast. I think there's less than ten people in the entire film, but uh, it uh, it's uh, you know uh, uh, it's basically a, a solo platform for this actress Sophie Thatcher uh, I don't know much about her I've definitely never seen her in anything and you know trying to 
find out stuff about her on IMDb. There's very little uh, to go on. It just it, all it literally has is the credits that she's done. I had never seen anything else. Most of it's television work. Uh, I don't know her age. My guess is she's somewhere between 15 and 18 years old. Um, you know, she looks like a teenager, but uh, sort of has the poise and confidence of someone a little bit older. Uh, you know, and she plays a teenage girl in this that she's prospecting on an alien planet with her father, played by Jay Duplass. Uh, and it was nice to see him in a role uh, like this. Um, you know, his bro- he and his brother, Mark Duplass, are filmmakers and screenwriters and producers and also occasional actors. But Mark Duplass is seen acting a lot more than Jay Duplass is going back to the whole exclusive content uh, Jay Duplass has a recurring role. He's one of the cast members of the show Transparent, but um, he usually plays more comedic roles, so it was nice to see him in a dramatic role. And, you know, this is a, it's a darker science fiction story. Um, the other actor, Pedro Pascal, uh, I know I've seen him in some other stuff. Definitely a character actor, and, you know, he plays a not entirely... Uh, likable character in this, but um, the n- this is one of those films that not not a whole lot happens. You know, father and daughter land on an alien planet looking for this, this prospect of um, it's kind of like a cross between a diamond and an oyster. There are these organic uh, it's never explained if they're a plant or an animal that burrow under the ground and uh, this amber-like substance is removed from them, but it's a it's a chemical process to remove it, and it's very difficult to do it. And if you do it wrong, it creates this acid, and it's very dangerous. But what, what I really liked about this film is a the you know the effects that they use for it, which were all practical, but very convincing, very uh, realistic looking. The, these like muscly, it looked like a cross between an oyster and a tree root that they pull out of the ground, uh, looked absolutely biological, absolutely real. And then cutting them open and going through the process. Uh, it was fascinating because, you know, it, it was completely believable that this was a real thing. It looked as real as, you know, in Ridley Scott's alien, when they cut open the face hugger and are trying to figure out how it works. So, um, as far as the story goes, not a whole lot happened, and I almost feel like this was like a thumbnail sketch of a film or the first episode of a television series. Like, there was more to come, but uh, um, I, I can't imagine with it only being released in Regal Cinemas that it's going to make a ton of money. I mean, it doesn't look like it cost a lot of money either, but um, there was a lot of promise and a lot of uh, potential in in this film, but as far as like being a, an entire complete film, it was a somewhat not completely satisfying work. And that's not to say I didn't like it. I did enjoy it. I just I wanted more of what they were giving us, and it it, it felt like it ended just as it was starting to starting to go somewhere. So um, I liked Prospect. If you're if you're a fan of science fiction, I definitely recommend checking it out. Um, I don't think it's available in theaters anymore. It was only playing for about a week from what I saw. 
But uh, yeah, if you see it on home video, give it a give it a watch. I'd give Prospect a solid six out of ten. Certainly worth watching. Uh, the next one that I saw was The Girl in Spider's Web, which it's weird because they're calling it a soft reboot uh, of a franchise, but I don't know if you can really call one film a franchise. That uh, I'm talking about uh, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, the the American version uh, that um, uh, David Fincher directed several years ago. And... Uh, no, no one who made that film was involved in this film. It was completely recast, and which I, I'm not sure why they did that. Uh, Rooney Mara, who played Lisbeth Salander in the first film, uh, was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Actress for it, um, and you know was very interested in being involved in this. And you know, I don't know if it's the fact that David Fincher didn't want to be involved, they decided to reboot it. But it's also cu- curious. Uh, uh, so this is based on the book The Girl in the Spider's Web, which is the fourth book in the series, um, and it was the first book not written by Stig Larsson, who, who wrote the first three books, but died before they were all published. So to continue the series, they've passed it on to another writer. But, um, you know, I, I'll be honest, I haven't, I haven't read the books, I saw the original version of all three films, and I was looking forward to them making that trilogy. So it's curious why, after the first book, uh, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, was made in English, that they jumped ahead to the fourth one, uh, not telling the other two stories. Um, So I went into this with a whole lot of... not with a whole lot of uh, high expectations... I had only seen uh, Claire Foy in one other movie. I saw her in the film Unsane, which I now I don't remember if I've seen it in 2018 or if it was 2017, but it was one of the worst films that I had seen, particularly a terrible film because it was directed by Steven Soderbergh, who's an excellent filmmaker most of the time, but I was very unimpressed with Claire Foy's performance in that, and uh, so I was hesitant for her taking over the role of Elizabeth Salander. Um, uh, Sylvia Hooks, Hooks, I'm not sure if I'm saying her last name right, Uh, she was, you know, decent in Blade Runner 2049, and she plays sort of the the antagonist in this. She's Elizabeth Salander's uh, sister, which there was, you know, there's... This book is the first time a sister is mentioned. Uh, she's not mentioned in the first three. So it, uh, I was kind of hoping for more of a development of that relationship. And that was sort of underwhelming. Um, it was also, you know, the, 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 the music for the American Girl with the Dragon Tattoo was done by a Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross and... It was excellent, and you know why. While the music for this film uh, was done by uh, Roque Banos, uh, or Banos, was certainly serviceable. It was a reasonable film score. It didn't. It wasn't exceptional, and it wasn't as exciting as the Trent Reznor Atticus Ross score. So that was another thing that I was just like, "Well, this is not going to be as good as that film." And and. 
full disclosure, it definitely this definitely wasn't as good as the girl with the dragon tattoo. However, I was pleasantly surprised how much I enjoyed it. It was it was more of a straight ahead action film. Most of the really dark elements from the first f- film were toned down. They weren't completely gone, but it was toned down. It, you know, a lot of the dark aesthetic was not quite as dark. I mean, you know, the girl with the dragon tattoo is clearly a David Fincher film and um, looks like it in every frame. And this doesn't have quite a distinct visual style. Um, uh, another thing that I that I really liked about this was uh, Stephen Merchant, who is probably most well-known in the United States for being one of the co-creators of the British version of The Office and, you know, so therefore uh, is a, an executive producer on the American version of The Office. Uh, he was in this. He's, he was also, he played Caliban in Logan last year. Um, and so this was another dramatic turn from him and it was nice to see him because he's primarily known as a com- comedic actor but it was nice to see some dramatic work from him. He did, he did a really good job. Um, also, Lakeith Stanfield, who had been in uh, Sorry to Bother You, which I saw earlier this year as well, gave a solid performance as well. So, um, you know, it's good to, good to see him in another film. Uh, Claire Foy definitely did uh, Elizabeth Salander justice. She was... She was reasonably great which sounds like a um an oxymoron but i i don't i would hesitate to say she was excellent um it wasn't the powerhouse performance that rooney mara gave uh, i mean she really just transformed herself into elizabeth salander so um and you know Unfortunately for Claire Foy, she's going to get comparisons to that performance. And to her credit, she did. Um, she didn't try and imitate Rooney Mara's performance. She just did her own thing with it. Uh, and uh, I don't know. It, she was she was very believable, and in some aspects, maybe even more believable as Elizabeth Salander, um, just because. There are times in the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo where Rooney Mara just looks a little too beautiful for someone who's who's gone through so much trauma and goes at lengths to to change her physical appearance uh, to to make herself you know unappealing. Um, sometimes Rooney Mara is still just too beautiful for what what that character seems to be trying to do. So uh, it worked. Visually, you know, there are some parts that it worked better with Claire, Fo- Claire Foy. But um, I don't know if they're going to try and do more of these films with Claire Foy. Uh, I don't know if they're going to go back. Um, you know, the budget was $43 million. Right now it's uh, $27.5 million is what it's made. And it's, you know, it's been out for several weeks um uh, let's see the uh yeah i guess you know it's it was definitely a financial disappointment for sony so uh it wouldn't surprise me if they don't do another one or wait a couple of years and then try and 
reboot it again. Um, I don't know. I just have a problem with Hollywood doing all these reboots when something doesn't work. Uh, it, it feels like a cop-out to me if they're like, oh, well, if it doesn't work, we'll just tell people it's a reboot and start all over again. And that sort of takes storytelling responsibility away. So, uh, yeah. But uh, The Girl in the Spider's Web, better than I expected it to be. Still not an amazing film, but I would give it a 6 out of 10. Uh, if you like, you know, dark sort of spy intrigue mystery films, although this really doesn't have much of a mystery compared to The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, but, uh, you know, worth a watch. And then the last film that I saw was Bohemian Rhapsody, which is the the Queen biopic, um, biopic. I never know how that word's supposed to be said. Both ways sounds not correct, but, and I've heard it said both ways, but, um, this is, I'm going to certainly be uh, in the minority of, from, from people I know who have seen it, not, not critics, but people in real life that I know, because uh, pretty much everyone I know who saw this movie loved this movie, and I did not. Um, and, you know, I was at a Thanksgiving, post-Thanksgiving party yesterday and discussing it with a good friend of mine, and we basically came to the realization the reason I didn't like it is because I'm such a music nerd obsessive that um, the stuff that took me out of the film is because it's very historically inaccurate. And um, so a lot of the events that transpire in the film I know are not true, uh, and I know they didn't happen that way, and it just took me out of the film and it killed my own enjoyment of it. So it basically uh, it's my own fault that I didn't enjoy this film as much as other people. Um, I will say I, I thought Rami Malek did an excellent job portraying Freddie Mercury. Um, he was, uh, you know, I I kept forgetting that it was the you know the actor from Mr. Robot, and uh, he was very very believable as as Freddie Mercury. Uh, I also really enjoyed Gwillem Lee, who played Brian May, um, a friend of mine who's a much bigger queen fan than me uh, remarked. He's like, I kept, I kept thinking I was seeing Brian May in it. Um, uh, he was, he was de- definitely convincing as well. And then Lucy Boynton, who played Mary Austin Mercury's, uh, wife slash girlfriend, uh, early in the film. Uh, she gave, gave a, a very pleasant performance. If, if, you know, if a little one noted, but, and she reminded me a lot visually of the English actress Sadie Frost, who, um, you know, probably most well known in Bram Stoker's Dracula as uh, Lucy, Mina Harker's friend who gets turned into a vampire. Sorry, spoiler alert if you haven't seen Bram Stoker's Dracula by now. I don't know what to tell you. Um, you know, some of the stuff that took me out of it uh, Joe Mazzello, who played John Deacon the bass player, um, no fault of his own, but Joe Mazzella is probably most well-known and will always be the most well-known as, uh, Tim, the little boy from Jurassic Park. And so every time I was watching, I was like, oh, it's the little boy who's trapped by, you know, terrorized by velociraptors playing bass in Queen. You know, I, uh, he's forever in my mind stuck in that, you know, there's certain actors that can't escape 
particular roles. You know, every time I see Mark Hamill in anything, I'm just like, oh, that's Luke Skywalker doing this. Um, you know, again, no fault of the actors. It's just the way it works. Um, my, my, you know, my biggest gripe with the film, like I said, was the historical inaccuracies, but also if you've seen any of these, you know, huge music icon biographies, they all follow a very similar arc. They're all a very similar story. And it, it, it's, it's tough to say it's cliched because most of what they're portraying is true, but you know where the story's going from the beginning. And uh, it's, you know, this movie certainly didn't take any chances with storytelling. The other thing, um, you know, some people may or may not know about the controversy. So Brian Singer is credited as the director on this film, despite the fact that he was fired early on in the production. Uh, Brian Singer was, I guess his behavior was very erratic on set. He was often late. Um, you know, there, Brian Singer has gotten in trouble several times for allegations of sexual misconduct, uh, a lot with underage men. Uh, and again, I say they're allegations cause nothing has been proven, but, uh, I don't think he's going to be working in Hollywood anytime soon, if ever again. But the reason he was fired from this film did not have anything to do with that. Um, it's just, he was, uh, he, you know, he wasn't getting along with Brian May and Roger Taylor, who the, you know, the guys, uh, who are still continuing as queen now and were executive producers on the film. So Dexter Fletcher was brought in to finish directing the film. And unfortunately for legal reasons, Brian Singer is still credited as the director. Dexter Fletcher is not, he's credited as an executive producer, but, um, he, he took over and, and directed the lion's share of the film. And, you know, that's a pretty thankless job. And, you know, I can't, I can't pick apart, which parts of the movie may have been directed by Brian Singer and which parts may have been directed by Dexter Fletcher. Um, Dexter Fletcher is someone I've known, I've known for years primarily as an actor, but, um, I, you know, I, I really couldn't speak to his ability as a director cause I don't know from this film, but, um, certainly he had a thankless job doing it. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I just, uh, the live performances in the movie were captivating. They did a really good job of recreating the the live live aid performance. Uh, although you know, people, plenty of people I know said, "Oh, it looks like they were really there." And uh, maybe I've just seen too many films because it 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 looked like CG to me. You know, it was CG. So as far as like recreating the the crowd. It, they did a good job with it. It was not embarrassing looking, but again, I, uh, ruining it for myself because I've seen so many films that it's the, you know, the seams are there. Uh, I can see them as far as like what's real and what's not. But, uh, the four gentlemen playing the band gave a very solid performance as the band performing. So, I can't fault them for that, but um, in general, I did not think it was a great film. Uh, it, it is now the highest-grossing music biography film of all time. That's um, sort of a niche genre, but still, that's an accomplishment for the film. And like I said, most people I know who have seen this film really enjoyed it. I did not. I was 
mildly entertained through it, but I don't think it's a good film at all. I would give Bohemian Rhapsody a 5 out of 10. But, uh, you know, that's just my opinion. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you again soon.